to episode 49 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 29th of October 2018. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelim. Hello. Will. Hello. And Graham. Hello. Very nice to have you back, Phelim. You were missed over the last couple of episodes. Uh, Let's get straight into the news, and one that will no doubt have you thrilled, and that is that Pine64 are working on a phone running the Plasma Mobile. A, because I like KDE, and B, because I'm cheap. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, this sounds really, really, really interesting. Um, I just hope it works, hope it happens, and I hope it's not too underspecced. It it does sound fairly decent, but I think it's actually sounding slightly lower spec than the 3T, though, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, by the looks of things, yeah. and I mean, it's kind of vaporware at this stage as well, isn't it? Yeah, so, I mean, if this is an early prototype, maybe they'll just go, oh, this is going to be really painful in about a year's time or year plus, whatever. So maybe we'll bump it up a little bit. But that said, uh, the laptop works out pretty well. So um, I heard that you have one on order. I'm jealous. Yeah, it should be arriving soon-ish, hopefully. there is. They said it was... Well, originally I opened a ticket saying, what the fuck's going on? Where is it? And they said that it would be next week and that was last week so that has been and gone and then i got another email saying that it was going to happen at the end of october well it's the 29th now very nearly halloween so i'm not holding my breath but with any luck i might have it before the next episode and then we can talk about it then and how great kda neon is on it um but yeah it should be pretty cool to have i would imagine the battery life is going to be amazing on it but that remains to be seen i don't know how useful it will be as a laptop with only two gigs of ram and stuff but I don't know. It's pretty exciting, though, that we're going to have potentially a KDE phone, a Plasma mobile phone, because it doesn't look too good for the Purism one, does it? The Liebman 5. It seems that Jonathan Riddle's gone a bit cold on that whole thing, if his comments are to be believed. Yeah, they seem to have their distro that they want to push, and that's kind of where they're focused, even though it's clearly the wrong decision. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, um, we're going to get to the huge news in a bit, but um, speaking of the wrong decision and desktop environments, <laughs> ha, 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 let's talk about Ubuntu 18.10, which has been released. So first of all, well done, Will. I saw you the day before in London and you were quite tired then. <laughs> Have you recovered yet? Yeah, pretty much. Although I was in Salt Lake City last week for the uh, 1904 planning cycle. So I am equally tired now. And jet lagged. And jet lagged, yeah. <laughs> How did that go there? Is it going to be another fairly boring release for the desktop? Well, that rather depends on your point of view. Um, quality is obviously paramount. So we'll be yeah. doing a whole load of um, improvements on um, and testing around uh, quality. But then I think we want to bump the revision of GNOME. We've got some improvements we want to make to Live Patch. We've got improvements we want to make to the graphics driver experience. There's a few um, GNOME uh, like paper cut bugs, really little tiny annoyances that we want to get ironed out. So I think... Um, yeah, there'll be a few interesting features in there. Uh, power management is one of the, the big ones for us. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. We'll see. I hope that it will be a good step on the ne- on the road to the next LTS and that it will be good quality, a little bit faster, a little bit less memory usage, and a few nice features to, to play with. And what about GS Connect? 
Well, it's there now. So um, the, I think, I don't know, I can't remember. Did we speak about this last time? The developer rewrote pretty much the whole thing from the ground up, um, and that landed fairly late in the cycle. So it's packaged. It's in the archive. It's in universe at the moment. So you can go and apt to get install that and uh, and take it for a spin. Um, and then we'll look at the the user experience of getting it set up and uh, and configured. And if we think it's up to scratch, then we could look to to put that into main. But we'll see. Because I was trying out Plasma this week and I noticed, oh yeah, KDE Connect and oh, I've already got it installed on my phone. And it was just so easy. It was such a smooth, perfect experience. I mean, Phelim, you can attest to this, right? Yeah, well, I've used it for ages and it's fantastic. I use it for all sorts of things. Like uh, if you're not at your PC and you've found interesting articles, I just fire them at my desktop PC. So when I come downstairs, I've got ready to go and I can open uh, Firefox is already sitting there with the, the things open and theoretically you can control your music that way too so you can fire a YouTube video to have it play out loud and scare the shite out of somebody so it's great <laughs> nice Graham do you use KD Connect? yeah I do I've used it for years as well it's, um, it's a great tool and it's really matured well I think I've spoken about it before I've, the coolest thing I've used it for is when my mouse battery ran out and I didn't have any yeah. spares and uh, I was able to use Connect to move the mouse on the screen, which is, actually works really well. It does. That's what I was checking out. And you can bring the keyboard up and just have whatever keyboard yeah. you're using on Android. It's fucking brilliant, man. It's great if you run a Kodi box or something like that and you need some decent remote control. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we should be talking about Ubuntu, though. Um, <laughs> uh, we did talk about the beta, so there's not that much to say. I mean, Phelim, you haven't had much to say about Ubuntu. I mean... You are not going to be using this on servers, I wouldn't imagine, because you just use the LTS, don't you? Yeah, LTS all the way, really. Um, and I already have a few 1804 ones I've been using for some ZFS storage, so yeah. Yeah, so it doesn't really hold that much appeal to us. I mean, you two on your KDE Neon running... Um, that's based on 1804 now. You've upgraded, haven't you, Failing finally? Yeah, I, I had. <laughs> I ran the laptop first just as a test, and then I didn't realize that literally three days away... Like they said, oh yeah, and uh, everything stops on Monday for 1604. I thought, oh Christ, I better do my main workstation. And then <laughs> over the weekend, and I did it on the Sunday, the day before. And <laughs> nice. yeah, it was all fine. So happy days. I might actually end up using not main Ubuntu, but Zubuntu 18.10. I don't know. I haven't really researched this. I should have probably done before I bought it, but I've bought a desktop anyway. Well, the parts to put a desktop together, including a ninth generation i5. Um, I think it's Coffee Lake or something, which I don't know. Uh, will, do you know about that? I should probably ask you off air about this, but fuck it. Um, will it work with 1804, do you think, before the hardware enablement for the point two? Oh, I'm sure it'll work. Um, you might lose some of the power saving options that are on that um, that chip. But yeah, I mean, it'll work fine. I'm sure of that. I've heard that maybe the sensors might not work properly, like uh, the thermal sensors and stuff. So I might end up running 1810 for a while. I don't know. When's the um, next hardware enablement release? Yeah, the next point release will be uh, February sometime. Right. So, yeah, I might end up stuck on 1810 for a while, which is not the worst thing in the world. Thankfully, there's not a huge difference between 1804 and 1810 with Zubuntu. So, uh, yeah, I'll have to report back on that as well. If I'd paid 10 quid extra delivery, I could have had it the next day, but instead it ended up being a week later. So I'm a bit pissed off about that. I shouldn't have been so tight. But oh well, I'm going to be busy this week anyway. Uh, so anything else to say on Ubuntu 18.10 or have we said it before? 
there's a few other features in there, XDG portals, for example, um, to sort of help with the confinement accessing the root file system through some sort of mediation, which is going to become what well, is is the standard way of doing things on KDE and on GNOME. So that's uh, a good improvement for Snap's usability. Um, fingerprint unlock, um, some improvements to the error reporting. But yeah, there's, there's incremental fixes in there. Um, Nothing perhaps that's going to set the world on fire, but on the whole, it's a it's a solid release. It's a good step forward. Fair enough. Well, speaking of solid releases, also we've had Elementary OS five Juno. Now this is the first proper release from them, really, because it was always uh, you know zero dot four or whatever, and so now they're saying we're here, we're a proper distro. This is not like in beta anymore, and it is a massive release for them. Just the release notes alone are a good half-hour read. <laughs> Did anyone make it all the way through? I spotted one thing which outraged me immediately, the phrase low DPI. Apparently my monitor's low DPI. <laughs> it's not high DPI, that's fair enough. It doesn't mean it's low DPI, though. <laughs> well, to be fair, I have got a machine with the low DPI screen, and that is my projector thing. Um, my projector box, Bricks projector, which I think is like 640 by 480 or whatever, which is very difficult to use most stuff at that resolution. Once you've got a video playing on it, it's fine. You just kind of ignore the blocky, shitty resolution. Um, but it, when you're trying to do any sort of desktop stuff on it, low DPI support would actually be useful in that case. GTK icons, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was wondering when the GTK hate would come. So did it just offend your eyes scrolling through this post then seeing all the GTK wonderful? Ah, it's, it's fine, but it just, it could be just so much tighter. Why, <laughs> like in that code app where the, the, the side folder names, they're just all so spaced apart. You get at least another three lines in between each one. It'd be grand. <laughs> what you need to be able to do is configure it with a K. Yes, yes, that's exactly <laughs> what you should do. Look, Elementary and Pantheon, their desktop, it's not designed for configuration, is it? It's designed to be, look, we quite like some aspects or a lot of aspects of macOS. We don't like some others. We like freedom and not proprietary bullshit. So here is a distro. And one of the things that they like about it is the fact that you can't really configure it. You just take it or leave it. And you have this consistent experience which I don't really like that experience. I like to configure stuff so it looks like Windows XP. <laughs> but some people want something that's not configurable. I mean, just look at GNOME, for example. That similarly is not very configurable unless you start hacking it with extensions and stuff. Thankfully, I don't like it either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, what about you, Graham? Have you um, checked out Juno? No, I haven't checked out Juno. I mean, it does look beautiful. I, I appreciate that they've probably got decent designers spending a lot of time on on the spacing that we just don't get, that some people do get. But um, I put the Point 0.4 release on my daughter's um, laptop, which she used for a couple of years before I ended up going to Unity with an update. Um, and she did find it... I, I didn't have to tell her it was Linux, and I still think there's some value in that. Mm. Definitely. I could put that in front of someone who hadn't used computers that much before and i think they would just get on with it yeah and that was that was what i was trying to get that's why i installed it and, and it and it worked and you know that's quite unique at the moment in linux distro land yeah i think that unity had that didn't it it had that kind of you don't have to necessarily know that it's linux it just sort of 
does yeah. fairly logical stuff if you don't have the baggage of having used computers for many, many years like the rest of us have. But elementary actually looks like Mac OS. I mean, it, I imagine there are plenty of people who who wouldn't know the difference. You know, they don't look too closely at how their pixel or pixels are arranged. I mean, obviously, it's functionally different when you get into the core of it. But they're probably people who have never opened the settings dialog in Mac OS either. Yeah, although the settings dialog does look fairly similar to yeah. it, it's heavily influenced by it. Is the bottom line? And is it a rip off or is it heavily influenced? Where's the line there? Um, I don't think it matters. It seemed to matter about 10 years ago when like every conference was filled with MacBooks and people running macOS, but I haven't noticed that recently. So I, it doesn't bother me so much, even if, even if I, I mean, legally you couldn't say it was a ripoff anyway, but even as close as they serve to macOS design. Yeah. And um, what about their attitude of making money then? What do we all think about that? Um, the fact that you have to pay for the download you could pay zero for it but you have to pay something i think if we expect projects like this smaller projects to exist then we need to expect there to be we need to expect it to be worth their while so yeah i i totally agree with this um with this policy that they've got and yeah like you say you can still pay zero if you don't want to contribute but i think it's a nice straightforward way of contributing directly to their bottom line yeah i mean i so for using Neon, um, they have a link back to the KDE um, fund that they would have where you can pay PayPal, whatever. And I, I try to do that every year. Um, so, I mean, I think if you have a nice, simple way through a store for people to reward people for a piece of software that they find useful, I think that's great. Um, yes, I know a lot of people got hacked off about it, but I mean... The realities of it are I'd rather somebody paid for that software than went off and got a Mac and then paid money into the iTunes store for something that's horrifically locked down. Even if it started as an open source piece of software, once it's in there, it's not the same piece of software because it's you can't even build it. So, And, and people don't realize that software like this just simply wouldn't exist. You know, everybody thinks there's some kind of altruistic dreamland out there, but there isn't. It's really tough. It's really tough to make any kind of money. So anything that makes adds to the friction and maybe makes them money. And designers are expensive and designers are reluctant to give their effort away for free. You know, creative common stuff from decent designers is very rare um, and it takes money. I think that they might be unique in the Linux distro, you know, the desktop Linux space in that... They're brazen, that's the wrong word. They, they, they're not shy about wanting to make money. Whereas it seems that other distros, okay, most other distros are kind of sponsored by a bigger company. You know, I'm thinking Ubuntu and Fedora, and they have other ways to make money, obviously. But even the smaller distros, it seems like they're, they're almost sort of embarrassed about asking for money to do it. Whereas you do have to appreciate just the the lack of embarrassment, the lack of shame, because there is no shame in making money. If you're working hard on something, you should be getting paid for it. And th what they've done with the, the downloads, I think, is fair enough. And also what they've done in the App Center, where if you buy an, an app for nothing, then when you go to get updates on it, then you'll be prompted, do you still want to pay nothing for it or do you want to contribute a bit? And also now they've got a, a very subtle button at the bottom of every paid app to just donate effectively to uh, the developer, which again, I think is nice. I mean, it is a very small distro in the grand scheme of things, and they don't really have the users to be generating massive amounts of money, but 
I think that other distros could take inspiration from this and other smaller distros because you need to have that money coming in in order to make it self-sustaining. And then you need to ha be self-sustaining in order to be able to sort out things like bus factor and stuff. You, you can't do that if you're sort of scratching to pay your server bills and everything. It, it reminds me a little of Arda um, because Paul Davis famously left Amazon, I think it was. He was one of the first employees and initially ploughed his money into creating Arda the, the door, which is a wonderful piece of software, but nobody was con contributing. Nobody was voluntarily um, um, giving their money. Um, and it came to a point where he needed an income. And, and it was it, it's the way I see it. It's like Arda was going to stop. It, will, it simply would not exist had he not done this pay for download. You can put zero in or you can pay a single dollar or you can compile it from source. And that adds friction and it did create some anger. But the end result now is that he gets something like $7,000 a month, which is the equivalent of the software engineering salary he would otherwise have elsewhere. And he's happy to support the project and other developers. And we've always talked about how do we support open source and free software development. And this seems to be a model that works. Yeah. Trust you to find some way to make it about audio stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I can't forgive him for Jack. <laughs> um, all right. Well, before we get on to like, the big news, just a quick plug for Simone Gertz's uh, Kickstarter. Now, she is a very inspirational person, I think, because apart from the fact that recently she had this brain tumor, I think it was like non-cancerous or whatever, but still she had to have brain surgery and stuff, and she was very chipper about it and made videos and stuff. Um, but what she does is makes, well, she's the queen of shitty robots, in case you don't know who she is, and she just makes these silly robots. Um, and I don't know, unlike most of the other people who get big on YouTube, who are just fucking vacuous idiots, she's actually an intelligent and charming person who I think is a good role model for kids and stuff. Um, so her Kickstarter is for a calendar, a kind of, it's hard to describe, but if you imagine it's an electronic calendar with a load of capacitive buttons on it. So the months go left to right and then the days go top to bottom. And so the idea is that you set yourself a thing that you're going to do every day, like, you know, you might go for a run or whatever, do some sit-ups or maybe even do a bit of code or whatever. And you say you're going to do that every day and then you can reward yourself by lighting up each day as they go by. Now, it is very expensive when, you know, I actually could use this thing because I take a vitamin tablet every day and to remind myself that I've done it, I put a little cross on my calendar with Sharpie, which is significantly cheaper than this thing. But it is quite a cool-looking bit of kit as long as you only have one daily goal otherwise you have <laughs> get out the need for a massive wall where you've got one for each task yeah true true i mean this thing's like 300 dollars, isn't it which Jesus is a lot Christ. yeah for it's a 365 lot of money, leds yeah well they're kind of capacitive touch things um but the thing is, like, she wants to be able to move away from just making money from YouTube. She wants to get into product design and stuff, um, which is fair enough because there's this whole YouTube burnout thing, um, and that that's prevalent amongst millennials. I don't know, but um, <laughs> get a job in a coal mine. <laughs> yeah, but look, this thing she's said she's going to open source it as well, so it's going to be open hardware. You can kind of 
um, get all the designs and make your own if you want to, which I would imagine would be significantly cheaper. I would pay you money to, for, to watch you do that. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm going to make one of these. Okay. That's it, Good. challenge accepted. No, not really. Not really. Like Shit. those stock photos with the fellas with the burnt fingers because they're holding the soldering iron at the front. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, don't get me started on my shitty soldering iron. I've got a gas soldering iron that just blocks up and it's so frustrating. I just keep having to put gas in it and it keeps going out and it's like the right temperature for about one second and then you just burn the solder. Anyway, let's not get too uh, excited about that. Right, let's talk about the real news that everyone's talking about. So yesterday afternoon, American time, sort of evening our time, a fucking bombshell dropped that IBM are going to buy Red Hat for like billions of dollars what is it 23 billion dollars or something it's more than that i think it's 34 billion dollars that's it yeah 34 the, the third biggest tech acquisition ever i read um and the naive thing to say would be well i use ubuntu so why do i care and you know i don't even use gnome you know if you're using kde neon but the reality is that red hat are so influential over the whole linux ecosystem that whatever ibm decides to do with it it's going to affect us all regardless. Yeah, now that we've all let System D in. <laughs> yes. And Paul saw it. Oh, dear God. Yeah. Leonard, you bastard. <laughs> so, first of all, is this a bad thing? That seems to be the sort of consensus that it's a bad thing, but I don't know, I'm not convinced that it is. I think it is possibly a bad thing, given by the fact that what's the last great piece of software that IBM's released? Name it. Lotus Notes. <laughs> okay, I said great, but fair enough. <laughs> yeah, but that's the point. They make hardware and stuff, don't they? Like, that's why... No, I don't think they even do that anymore. They've sold off all of those divisions. Then maybe they do some of the mainframe stuff still, but that is my problem with maybe Red Hat as well. Red Hat was never out to get the customers like yourself or myself. They were out to get the big banks that used mainframes or were getting away from mainframes or they had multiple multiple thousands of machines so they were never really in for converting people to open source the fact that they had a great open source operating system was their core system but a lot of the times they were people were running closed source stuff on top like sap and all the likes of that stuff and now we have the world's one of the world's largest closed sort of services companies ibm who are now buying them and, you know, not with a great track record of uh, managing projects, it's good stewardship. So I'd be really scared that, you know, a lot of people are going to have to leave because they're just going to get chewed up by the machine. Like, Yeah, 330,000 employees at IBM. It's incredible. Yeah, that, that, that's a ship that can turn on a dime. <laughs> um. You know, I, I I think, you know, my personal opinion is that I, I think I agree with you, Phelan. It's difficult. I mean, I, the fact, I kind of keep forgetting that IBM still exists, and yet it is this it's the behemoth of, you know, old tech. Um, so it operates outside of my realm of experience, and that's, I suppose, that's what worries me. That's what worries me on for Red Hat. Red Hat's behalf, and also what it means to kernel development and all the, and GNOME and all the other things that Red Hat is so heavily involved in. Well, IBM have said, of course, that Red Hat will continue to operate as its own entity. Um, 
but being a bit cynical, they always say that sort of thing. Mm. Um, so it will be interesting to see um, in the next, well, probably two years. I don't imagine a whole lot's going to change in the next 12 months, but um, give it a couple of years, then I think we'll we'll start to see where it's going. Yeah, I mean, Jim Whitehurst is going to sit in the IBM board and he's going to be reporting to Ginny, I don't know her second name, but, you know, if you've been running a company of a substantial size, I mean, as Joe said in Linux Action News, what a billion dollars is not to be sniffed at, like, um, <laughs> and then Red Hat is way bigger than that, at closing in three to four, whatever it happened to be depending on whether they say it's overvalued or not. I have no idea. It's stock exchange. So yeah, whatever. And, you know, he's going to essentially become second in command of this supposed separate entity. It's just never in a million years going to happen. I, I can't see how it could. This is, again, my personal opinion, but I think I've told the story. I might even have been at FozTalk Live when I kind of graduated and computers at the time in the early, early mid nineties were kind of boring. And I, Kind of the, that was partly because of IBM, and that's what worries me as well. Whether the, the future of Red Hat within IBM will just simply be boring, and you know, open source will not innovate to the extent that it could do had Red Hat not been at, at IBM. Over, yes, after two years, in five years, ten years' time, however long it might take. Let's not forget, though, that IBM have been sponsors of some significant open source projects over the years, and they still have a pretty large open source department. So I don't think that they should be seen as um, as against the fundamental values of Red Hat. I think that there there's plenty of um, crossover there that they should be able to... Well, I think they already get the open source model, so I don't think we should be scared from that perspective. No, I think certain parts of IBM might, but there's an awful lot of inside IBM that is very closed and very proprietary. And all I can see online is people going, haha, yeah, just wait till the licensing team come to your door. And now all of a sudden you're up a 60 fold increase in your licensing because they've made a mess of it or whatever. Um, I don't know. This is what annoys me about the the whole idea of public companies: the fact that if you're not continually growing at a astronomical rate, you're seen as failing. Um, you know, if you're failing as a three to four billion dollar company because you you know you haven't gone up by X percent every year, yeah, you definitely have to sell that company. And obviously, they were made an offer they can't refuse. But why do they need to be bought? You know, obviously, that's a naive view in the fact that you know these are companies that are out to make money. But if you're really good at what you're doing and you're continuing along doing that with, you know, it's not like you're floundering, then I just don't see what I can't just actually keep at that, you know, do a good, a good job and do it well. Like, mm. I thought some of the language in the various press releases was interesting. Um, the, the red hat wording was more in the, we're joining together to become, you know, one big happy family kind of style. Um, and the IBM language was much more, we are acquiring Red Hat. They are now part of us. Um, I don't know if that's, you know, bravado of the companies or if that is some kind of indication about how the various, how the two parties see each other in, in that relationship. But, uh, yeah, we'll see. Well, I have a little bit of experience of this, of, you know, working for a company that gets acquired. Okay. It was nowhere near this scale but what i learned from that is a bigger company doesn't acquire a smaller company for nothing no it costs 33 billion <laughs> but the reason that they acquired that company was because that company 
was doing something good. And Red Hat is a profitable company that is worth something. And IBM are not stupid. If they buy Red Hat and then fuck it up, it's not going to be worth anything. And okay, you sometimes get these acquisitions where they just like strip out, um, you know, the acqui hires and all that. You know, they want the talent or they want the patents or whatever. But it seems with this one that it's pretty straightforward. Red Hat is massive in the cloud business. Yeah, but they're not a cloud provider. IBM's a cloud provider, and they've now tried to buy in expertise to make their cloud com- competitive with Amazon, Google, and uh, Microsoft. Well, exactly. So, but that's not Red Hat's business. Mm, I don't know, isn't it? I mean, they've got OpenShift, which is their cloud providing business. Yeah, but they're providing it. It's like, you know, you don't buy a car company because you're a tarmac company and you want to encourage people to drive more on your roads. Like, it just <laughs> seems like a shite way to go about it. I, I had the misfortune of trying to listen to some of the call. Um, and the amount of times that I heard the words cloud, market, hybrid, and trillion nearly caused me to some sort of auditory <laughs> deafness. Um, yeah, it was just buzzwords left, right, and center. It was horrific. Well, one thing that stood out to me was uh, the Red Hat Executive Vice President and President of Products and Technologies, Paul Cormier, said, we are an enterprise software company with an open source development model. We're not an open source company. And that's kind of a key distinction, isn't it? That it's saying that they're not an open source company. They are an enterprise software company that happens to have this open source development model. And that is a little bit worrying, I think. Yeah, well, that's what I was saying. And we've kind of, I'm going to, inverted commas, let them fund an awful lot of core infrastructure across the the whole desktop and server side, like things like systemd, things like GNOME, GTK, a lot of those people were paid by Red Hat. And I mean, that's great. It was really good and, you know, not mocking them for it, but we've allowed ourselves to be in the position where potentially, what if these people say, Jesus, I'm not working for IBM anymore. I'm out of here. And then they're gone. And then we don't have those people in key positions that are doing that work. Um, we might be in trouble. Can I ask an awkward question here that uh, I think Will and Graham may stay a little bit silent about, but what does this mean for the whole Linux ecosystem next? I'm thinking of Canonical and I'm thinking of Microsoft, maybe? Well, I think having gone through what I imagine some of the uh, Red Hat employees are going through now, I think it would be unfair of us to speculate on that. Uh, I'm not saying that to avoid the question, but... Yes, you are. Well, yeah, okay. (laughs) But I, you know, those those guys are going to be being pinged on Twitter all the time. What's going on? What's happening? What are you going to do now? And they, the, the simple answer is they don't know, and they won't know for for months and months, maybe even years. Um, so yeah, I, who knows what will happen? Those guys certainly don't happen. And if we were to guess, it would be purely guesswork. Yeah, but it, it's got to put pressure on the likes of someone else needing that skill, and that scares me in the fact that of the list of Google. Amazon and Microsoft that are left. It's Microsoft most likely who could end up buying Canonical, which is one of the fears that makes me wake up in the middle of the night and sweating. And uh, I just hope that doesn't happen. Maybe they can just have a partnership and everything can be fine. And they can just work that way, and they don't. Nobody has to buy anybody. 
It'll be all fine, and I don't have to rapidly install Debian everywhere. That'd be great. <laughs> I think we might get onto it a bit later, but I mean, I think this these kind of events are inevitable with the success that open source has had. I mean, it, it would always have come to this. That's the way that capitalism works. Yeah, don't get me started on this uh, constant growth being mm. impossible thing. I mean, it's there are only a certain number of resources. You can't grow indefinitely unless you start colonizing the stars. And that doesn't look to be happening anytime soon, unless Elon's to be believed. <laughs> but I do think it's inevitable. And, you know, if if it is a threat to open source and it's far too early to say, far, far too early, then we'll work around it. They, you know, the whole nascent nature of open source, what created it was a much tougher learning curve and a much mm. tougher problem to solve than what what we'd face where there are fewer opportunities in the future. And if those people, you know, if people are still going to care about hacking on the kernel, hacking on the GUI and doing cool stuff, as long as it remains relevant. Do you reckon Chris Lamb is cackling madly in his Debian lair right now going, ha come to me, my pretties. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Okay, this episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Go to do.co slash LNL and you can get $100 credit with 60 days to use it. Now, what DigitalOcean offers is an opportunity, an opportunity to do whatever you want with Linux or even FreeBSD in data centers all around the world that have got really fast network access and really fast SSDs. Whether that's just a little $5 a month droplet running Ubuntu or Fedora or Debian or CentOS that you could use for running a website or a Nextcloud server, all the way up to hugely powerful servers all around the world with tons of block storage or object storage attached, the possibilities really are endless. If you can do it with Linux, you can do it with DigitalOcean. They've also got some container distros, CoreOS, Fedora Atomic, and Rancher OS. But if you don't like any of those, you can just use your own custom image. And you can either start with a bare bones distro installation and then just build it up exactly how you want it. Or if you want to take a shortcut, they've got loads of one-click apps like Basic Lamp and Lemp Stacks, WordPress, Discourse, GitLab, in fact, a friend of mine spun up a discourse droplet recently, and it was just trivial. Within minutes, it was up and running and ready to go. You can pick exactly what suits your needs as well, because they've got CPU-optimized droplets if all you need is raw power. And I mentioned the block storage and object storage. You just decide how much you want and attach it to your droplet. One of the really useful features is the backups. You just enable it for the droplet that you want, and then that's it. You've got your peace of mind. And if you don't want to be messing around with IP tables or even... UFW, they've got cloud firewalls, which means that you can block traffic before it even reaches your droplet. I've been recommending DigitalOcean to people since long before they sponsored this show, and I've been using their services for years now, and I've always been really impressed with it. So go to do.co slash LNL and get that $100 credit, try them out, you've got nothing to lose. Go to do.co slash LNL. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone for supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. It's very much appreciated. Remember that if you support us to the tune of $5 or more on Patreon, you can get an ad-free feed so you don't have to listen to the adverts. Uh, you can find out more about that at latenightlinux.com slash support. And if you go to latenightlinux.com slash contact, there's various ways there, including the Telegram group and email and Twitter and stuff. So, Will, you hassled me to get us on TuneIn. I don't even know what that is. I did it. It seems to be there. They said Yay. it'll be there soon within the next 24 hours. Something about like talking to your computer or something. Yeah, so if you've got uh, Alexa at home 
Um, I, I, I presumably it works on the Google one as well. I don't know. But um, the, the biggest sort of provider of radio channels and podcasts is TuneIn. And so if you say to Alexa, open late night Linux on TuneIn, then from now on, it should start playing you the latest episode. Sweet. Do they cache it themselves or do they play it off our server? Do we know? I'm pretty sure they cache it locally, but I don't know for a fact. Uh, all right, so we won't get the stats then. Great. Well, I, I think they have some um, they have some stats through their platform that I think we can get access to. Ah, right, cool. Right, I'll have to check that out then. And we're on uh, Spotify as well. Yeah, we talked about that last time. Yes. Oh, sorry. Jesus. I thought you didn't use proprietary software like Spotify. I don't, but loads of people do, and loads of people went, oh, you're on Spotify, that's cool. I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's cool they finally opened that up to anyone. So yeah, check us out on Spotify as well. Okay, this episode of Late Night Linux is sponsored by CDN77. Go to cdn77.com slash LNL, that's for Late Night Linux. And they are a UK-based CDN provider with a standalone live streaming platform. And apart from sponsoring loads of open source projects like CentOS, KDE, Fedora, and Gentoo, one of their main clients is the European Space Agency, who use CDN77 to deliver Hubble images all over the world. They're a real innovation leader. They were the first CDN to implement HTTP2 and Brotley compression. And everything's developed in-house, including their own DDoS protection. And they can push 80 gigabits of live streaming traffic through just one server through optimizations. And this CDN consists of over 500 servers all running Debian, and only a few of them are VMs. The vast majority of them are physical servers. And they've got 30 points of presence all over the world in North America, South America, Europe, Asia, and Australia, with over 7 terabits per second of network capacity in total. They've got excellent 24-7 live support, and you can either go pay-as-you-go, or they've got monthly pricing plans. Either way, there's no commitments and no hidden costs, and if you go to cdn77.com slash LNL, you can get a 14-day free trial with no credit card needed. And then if you do stick with them, you'll get an extra 10% on top of their first payment bonus. So go to cdn77.com slash LNL and start delivering your content. Right, I've got a question for you. Is FOSS finally growing up? So we've seen all this Linux code of conduct stuff, and that seems to all be sorted out now as far as I'm concerned. Bit of a storm in a teacup. And now even GNU have got these kind communication guidelines that they're working on. Uh, I never thought I'd see Stallman go in for stuff like that. And Samba are sorting out similar stuff. It seems that everyone is getting their HR house in order, shall we say. And it makes me wonder, like, are we finally getting to a point where free software and open source is growing up? And, you know, we, we're not just a bunch of hobbyists flaming each other on mailing lists and stuff. Like, are we becoming more of a sort of force to be reckoned with that can be taken seriously? Or are there enough wankers out there ruining it for everyone with their flaming and refusal to accept stuff and screaming about social justice warriors and stuff? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I too say yes. <laughs> and we're all getting older. Um, not much time left. So let's stop fighting and let's start to love each other. <laughs> it's, it's like when Homer Simpson becomes a boxer and his, his walkout tune is can't, why can't we be friends <laughs> <laughs> it's more like Mars Attacks when he says why can't we all just get along but you know do, do I have a point here like are things changing finally or am I just imagining that 
I think through necessity. I mean, <laughs> there, there's been so much kind of incendiary arguments going on for so long now that it needs some kind of call to order. Um, just to just to maybe point people in the right direction. I think you're right. I think in a way, the fact that the community could potentially be so wide to encompass people who don't initially understand the way that it worked before is a sign that it's grown to a certain size and we need to have these kind of code of conducts to explain the rules. Um, but I don't think it probably fundamentally changes the way that people agree or disagree with each other. And I don't, I can't see, I just can't see that changing, actually. I can't see the way decisions are made changing. I think it's also handy to have a sort of level where you know not to go past. You can get really hacked off with something and if you know you have a, a safety margin that you're supposed to not cross, you kind of maybe can step back and see that as well. Whereas before this, it was one-upmanship as to who could send more vitriol than the other person in order mm. that they could win because you had to win. So maybe maybe that helps. Will, do you feel that people are kind of finally catching up to what you've been doing for years at Canonical? Because you've had the code of conduct there for years and it seemed to be running fairly smoothly as a result of it. Uh, it's difficult to say. I think there is, has been a certain amount of social change in the last few years, which has made things like codes of conduct um, expected, perhaps not necessary, but certainly expected. And if you haven't got one, then there are questions about why you haven't got one. Um, and yeah, as as a whole, as a framework, they work very well and they give very clearly defined sets of rules by which you can enforce certain behaviours and um, more importantly, exclude people who choose to just, you know, stick with the trolling and the name calling and the, you know, the sort of standard behaviour of um, online forums and uh, and that kind of thing. So it's a really good way of, of drawing a line in the sand and saying, if you cross this line, then we're not going to have you as part of our community. And once you start doing that and you start excluding the naysayers and the trolls, then I think the the whole in ecosystem can start to flourish and really grow under its own steam without fear of being uh, shouted down and belittled in public, which I think has held back the, the community quite a lot over the years. Is it sad that it's come to this, that we've had to do this? Isn't the whole point of free software and open source that it's kind of this community working together for this kind of bigger thing than ourselves individually? You know, the, we're greater than the sum of our parts. Well, uh, so, so, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. I think in the past, uh, and in fact, I heard a, a radio program the other day that made this point, which was in the past, if there was somebody shouting and screaming on the street corner, then you know people would have looked sympathetically and thought that perhaps they were unwell. And the internet has given people who like to shout and scream uh, a global voice, and they become organised. And suddenly, people who would otherwise be ignored suddenly have a very strong, powerful influence over certain communities. So I think that having these rules in place is a, is a necessity these days. Yeah, but just because it's necessary, that doesn't make it sort of sad that it's necessary. You know, that doesn't really answer the point. You know, we, we clearly are in this situation, but I'm just saying, like, should we have, sh should it have got this far? I suppose it was inevitable, but it doesn't make it any less sad that we're having to resort to drawing up rules and everything. I think it's just human nature, really. And, and in the early days, when it was a group of a few hackers 
coming together um, and around a project that they were especially excited about, it was fine. But then the internet got invented and every man and his dog can suddenly get involved and have as as loud a voice as anybody else in that project. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that is what has mandated these uh, controls. I also think dealing with the personality types is an issue. I mean, it wasn't such an issue when the community was smaller and without you know, disparaging anyone or how people work. But there is a specific set of personality types that typically work on these projects. And they're not always aware of the impact that they have, the wider impact they have on more sensitive people. And if, you know, if if some keywords are enough to stop them or make them think twice, then in a broader, wider community that we want to be bigger, then it's a good thing. And I don't think it's necessarily a sign of growing up, but just a sign of the size of the community that we now have. And where does money come into all of this, do you think? I mean, look at GNU, there's not much money to be made there, is there? Um, but even they are implementing this stuff. Um, but then, you know, the likes of the Linux kernel, that is seriously big money these days. And that surely had an influence on this recent code of conduct stuff. I think it's like past the parcel. You don't want to be the person left with no seat at the end. Oh, damn. I've, I've confused two games together there. What is it? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, the one where they play music and you run around and then have Musical to get Musical chairs chair. and past oh, the parcel. Right. So, yeah. so you don't want to be the one that's left at the end of you know the summer where they do an article about the projects that didn't get a crowd of conduct and you're the only one left out. I think that's why the could be the only possible explanation that Stallman decided to do one. He's, he just wanted to be on... The, the safe side of the the thing. But I don't think that's a bad thing either. I mean, you're better off to have the rules in the first place so you can at least point to them and say, don't do that, thanks, rather than, oh, well, you didn't say I couldn't do it. So some people just want to be dicks. And now that Gabe Newell has given us gaming on Linux with uh, DXVK or whatever it's called, they should all probably congregate around there, so we should be fine after a while. <laughs> Leave them on proprietary Steam, thank you very much. Gaming's even worse. Exactly. <laughs> so I hear, yes, thankfully I don't get involved in that stuff. Just this big virtual construct. <laughs> what, the world? Big, yeah, your, your experience. The big blue room. <laughs> don't like to go out there very often. Bringing it back to money for a second, we talked about this when we were talking about elementary. Um do we think it's good that elementary are able to charge for their software? And I think that that is a reflection of the maturity of the open source ecosystem. Uh, and I think it's good for projects to give that sense of longevity. You can give money directly to this project if you want it to continue and to succeed. It needs your money. And now we have mechanisms where you can give money if you choose to, but you're not forced to. Uh, and I think that that is really quite exceptional in the world of um, you know commerce generally that we still have maintained the ability to get stuff for free um, or if you have strong morals about free and open source software both of those things can exist at the same time within the open source community well do let us know what you think dear listener but if you want to just shout about social justice warriors or how it's terrible and censorship or whatever. You can get fucked, quite frankly. I've had enough of people <laughs> commenting like that. Just fuck off. Not interested. Uh, I probably shouldn't alienate like sections of the audience like that, should I? But, you know, I, they are just part of the problem as far as I'm concerned. You know, they, they, anyone's free to be in the community. But when they start just ranting about that stuff, I just think, 
just, I don't know, go back to Gab. Oh, wait, you can't. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, that'll probably do it for this episode then. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, hopefully with the full house again. Oh, Christmas is coming, guys. Christmas is coming. Shut up, Joe. (laughs) It's not even Halloween. Yes. um, Yeah. We should have had like a spooky intro, shouldn't we? Because it's nearly Halloween. But oh well. Thankfully, we're European and not going for that American nonsense. Hey, hey, hang on. I resent that. It's an Irish holiday from Samhain, so shut up. Is it? Uh, (laughs) It is. Damn Yanks coming in here, stealing our holidays. (laughs) Bastards. I'm sure that you have like pumpkins and, uh, you know. It, well, it's not even dressing up as scary anymore, is it? It's dressing up as fucking um, whatever, just characters from telly shows and stuff. Don't tell me I shaved my legs for nothing, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> right, let's get out of here. Right, until next week then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Will. And I've been Graham. See you later. Mm-hmm.